Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Reporting from New York, I'm your host, Evan Gottesman, Communications Associate at Israel Policy Forum. Earlier this month, we marked 25 years since the historic handshake between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn. That anniversary has given many people pause to re-examine the legacy of the 1990s peace process. Nevertheless, the Oslo Accords and the 1979 Egypt-Israel Treaty before it remain celebrated for producing landmark moments in Arab-Israeli diplomacy the first official peace between Israel and an Arab country, mutual recognition between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization, all unthinkable just a few years before they were achieved. But what if the diplomacy of that era prevented a more comprehensive solution today via a two-state outcome? That's the argument levied in a new book, Preventing Palestine, a political history from Camp David to Oslo. The author, Dr. Seth Anziska, joins us on the show today. Seth is the Mohammed S. Farsi Polanski Lecturer in Jewish-Muslim Relations at University College London. His research and teaching focuses on Palestinian and Israeli society and culture, the international history of the modern Middle East, and contemporary Arab and Jewish politics. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Haaretz, and the New York Review of Books. A visiting fellow at the U.S. Middle East Project and a 2018-2019 Fulbright Scholar at the Norwegian Nobel Institute, Seth has held fellowships at New York University, London School of Economics, and the American University of Beirut. He received his Ph.D. in International and Global History from Columbia, his Master's in Modern Middle Eastern Studies from St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and his Bachelor's in History from Columbia as well. Seth, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So you open your book, Preventing Palestine, with a very interesting turn of phrase, describing it as the genealogy of a non-event. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the challenges uh, as a historian writing about the recent past is the risk of an anachronism or thinking about what we might understand today in terms of statehood or the emergence of a Palestinian state and what this would look like in the 1970s and 1980s. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is take us back to the period in time when the possibility of what might emerge as a sovereign or independent entity for Palestinians was being prevented. Now, whether or not that looked like statehood, as we might understand today in the conventional shorthand for how we talk about the two-state solution, was certainly not the case because the notion of statehood for Palestinians was not on the table in the late 70s. Um, It was only the beginning of a moment in time when the U.S. government in particular was talking and thinking about the idea of a Palestinian homeland. Uh, And we can talk a bit about the distinction between what that looked like, whether that was an entity, uh, an autonomous, uh, self-determining government, uh, or something akin to a state. So the idea of a genealogy of a non-event is how to describe the process by which uh, this this entire... um, sort of situation unfolded, um, and whether or not other possibilities could have existed or might still exist today. And you mentioned that distinction between a state, which is what you hear about in the news today, the question of whether there will be a Palestinian state, and the idea of a Palestinian homeland, which was the parlance of the United States government back then. That was what Jimmy Carter was talking about in the 1970s. What's the difference? Because on the surface, they almost sound like Mm. the same thing. 
Well, remember in the late 1970s, you're dealing with a moment in time in global politics when the struggle for self-determination in the global south uh, in particular has uh, really spread uh, in many different directions and the demands for self-determination or self-governance on a particular territory have really taken hold. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome looks like a conventional sovereign state. Um, and Palestinians who are demanding self-determination, who are talking in terms of uh, the idea of partition or territorial sovereignty in the 1970s, imagine or hope for or aspire to that state. But in the U.S. in particular, the idea of a PLO-run Palestinian state was beyond the pale at the time. So there were other ideas circulating about how to address this. Now, the trouble is that a state, uh, by definition, uh, requires some sovereign control over borders, entry, exit, uh, and uh, a whole host of um, ways in which uh, sovereignty is determined by the people who are living there. And in this instance, uh, that wasn't very much uh, always in mind when uh, the U.S. and the Israelis, and we'll talk about the Egyptians as well, looked at or talked about a Palestinian uh, entity. And so that's the distinction that I draw. Now, you mentioned that the idea of a PLO-run state is beyond the pale. And for people examining this today or who are just following the news, the idea of a two-state solution with the Palestinian state presumably run by the Palestinian Authority, which itself is dominated by Fatah, the dominant faction in the PLO, um, was was mainstream American policy until relatively recently. What, what the United States policy is now is um, trending more towards the right, um, to put it lightly. But in any case, that was the mainstream American policy for almost 20 years. Why was it so beyond the pale not much longer before that in the 1970s and 80s? It's important to remember that the PLO itself is undergoing a transformation in the 1970s. Uh, the organization which is led by uh, Yasser Arafat it consists of multiple factions who are under the wider umbrella of the Palestine Liberation Organization, and not all of those factions at the same time uh, believed in uh, pursuing the idea of partition or of the notion of what becomes a two-state uh, idea. There were those who still argued for uh, all of historic Palestine and others who argued for military means rather than diplomatic efforts as a way to promote uh, self-determination and the pursuit of possible uh, sovereignty. That begins to change in the mid-1970s, in particular as a result of the 1973 war. And so by the time uh, the UN recognizes the PLO in 1974, Arafat gives a very famous speech at the General Assembly, um, you're beginning to see the way in which the PLO itself has evolved. Uh, and therefore, your, your, your thinking or understanding of PLO politics has to bear in mind that particular transformation of the 1970s, um, which, which was constituent uh, in, in this particular part of the story. And this is also going on during the Cold War. Does that play into the United States angle at all in terms of not engaging with the PLO? Yeah, th there had been in 1975 a decision by Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, uh, under uh, Gerald Ford, um, before that under Richard Nixon, uh, to ban American officials from direct engagement diplomatically with the Palestine Liberation Organization. This was done in the context of an agreement with the Israeli government in the aftermath of 1973. And that ban on official negotiations or discussions really hamstrung the Carter administration in their efforts to try and engage the PLO. 
because Carter came into office in 1977 with a very different attitude than Nixon and Ford towards the Palestinian issue. He's the first U.S. president who really sees them as political um, uh, problem or, or issue to be, to be resolved. What had been the United States' position before that? The U.S. tended to see the Palestinians through the lens of humanitarian concerns. Um, there was uh, obviously the funding of UNRWA, the ways in which the U.S. was supporting uh, refugee um, resettlement in other Arab countries through their donations. Uh, of course, now that is being cut entirely by the U.S. government, but at the time, that was uh, the, the way in which the American government looked at or thought about the Palestinians. So essentially, the Palestinians were thought of as separate from peace between Israel and the Arab countries yeah. because they weren't their own country, they're not their own state, distinct from the Egypt, Syria, all those dealings. Precisely. And it's in the aftermath of 73, in particular with the context of Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy, that the Palestinian question resurfaces. And Carter comes into office determined to put the Palestinian question at the heart of a comprehensive agenda for regional peace unlike Kissinger's approach uh, in the years prior. And that attitude is rooted in a whole host of things. It's rooted in shifts that are happening in policy circles in the mid-1970s. The Brookings Institution ran a very important uh, research group uh, on the Palestinian question that is being near Brzezinski, who becomes Carter's national security advisor, participated in. Um, and there's a recognition by the mid to late 70s that you must engage or think about Palestinian demands if you ever want to resolve the broader dynamics of regional peace. And so that's the basis upon which Carter begins to talk and think about this particular issue. That uh, element of engagement with the PLO or engagement with the Palestinians is still caught up in Cold War concerns and in the legacy of violent acts of terror that have been happening in the early and mid-1970s. So Carter comes into office looking at the Palestinians as being at the heart of Arab-Israeli peace, that it can't just be Israel and the Arab states. It also has to be Israel and the Palestinians. But ultimately what uh, Carter becomes known for is the Israel-Egypt Peace Treaty, which is just a direct bilateral treaty, not with any other state or entity. It's just Israel and Egypt. How does Carter end up making that shift from wanting to bring about peace between Israel and the Arab states and Israel and the Palestinians to just ending up with Israel and one single Arab state, Egypt, making peace. So it's important that we think about Carter not in isolation, but Carter in relationship to both the Israelis and the Egyptians in this instance. And the first part of the answer to that question is the transformation in Israeli politics itself in 1977 with the election of Menachem Begin. Uh, as the first uh, head of the Likud party and head of the opposition to the prime minister position in Israeli politics. This is an enormous transformation after the dominance of the labor party in Israel. And the the rise of the Likud um, brings with it uh, ideological convictions about the greater land of Israel and about retaining the territories that had been conquered in 1967. Remember, uh, although the labor government uh, was the uh, the, the first government to begin expansion of settlements in the Golan Heights and then in the West Bank uh, in the period between 1967 and 1977, uh, those were often on the grounds of security uh, concerns or notions of strategic depth. Uh, under the Likud and under the Begin uh, premiership, the ideological um, basis for that settlement project was also rooted in notions of a greater land of Israel and things that go back to the ideology of revisionist Zionism. 
So Bagan entering office poses a problem because Bagan's premise is that there is never going to be a return of the West Bank and Gaza Strip or of East Jerusalem. On the Sinai, as I write about in the book, he's a bit more open to the idea of some form of resolution as he is on the Golan Heights. Uh, and there is some evidence that early on there's an inkling or a possibility of something with the Syrians. But he's very clear from the get-go that the West Bank and Gaza are off the table. Now that, that means it's a, a clash with the American government because Carter knows that the retention of the West Bank and Gaza will make the possibility of peace with the Palestinians impossible. So there's that issue to deal with. The second issue to deal with is that the Egyptians under President Anwar al-Sadat uh, in particular are very intent on a resolution that will gain them the Sinai Peninsula, which had also been lost in 1967. And Sadat saw what he was doing in terms of the Cold War strategic interests. He wanted to move uh, Egypt away from the Soviet Union towards the United States. There's now wonderful scholarship on the 1973 war that explains how Sadat really starts this war as a means of breaking the logjam of detente. Um, and in a way, the, the rise of the shuttle diplomacy, Sadat thought would lead to a peace agreement that would bring him back to Sinai. It didn't happen, and so he's anxious to pursue that again with Carter. So if you take Begin's maximalist position, Sadat's willingness and desire to get a peace treaty over the Sinai Peninsula, even while he spoke very openly about his support for the Palestinians, uh, in the end, the result is a much narrower outcome than Carter had had desired from the get-go. And you, in your book, sort of lay out the Camp David Accords, which preceded the the final Israel-Egypt peace treaty, as the genesis point of what you call the state prevention, the series of events that led to the prevention of the creation of a Palestinian state, which you know brings us right to the present. There obviously is no independent Palestinian state um, in existence today. But you don't see the outcomes of the treaties and processes described in the book as inevitable. Um, instead, you lay them out kind of as a fluid succession of events. So if there was nothing preordained about the establishment or non-establishment mm-hmm. of an independent state of Palestine, what do you see as the key turning points um, going from Camp David forward that brought us to where we are now in a situation where there is no uh, sovereign Palestinian state? I think at the heart it is a way of thinking or understanding the Palestinian quest for self-determination in two very different ways. I think Menachem Begin and the Israelis did not see Palestinians as a collective demanding self-determination. If anything, they saw them as individuals in need of individual rights that perhaps would improve their daily life. So essentially a minority group. A minority group in the vein of Jabotinsky's revisionist attitude or a kind of liberal interwar European notion of how to deal with minorities. Grant them individual rights, grant them greater control over their education, over their economy, over cultural life, but sovereignty and territorial rights were never considered. The U.S. had a very different view of the Palestinians and of the idea of self-determination. So this was one component of, uh, of a clash. The second is the ways in which the Israeli government looked at the settlements. And from the beginning, Begin said that he will continue to expand the settlements. Um, Carter was opposed to this, and Begin wins in that battle with Carter. And there's a whole host of reasons I explain in the book, uh, in the negotiations themselves, uh, what Begin promised uh, to do and what he actually does was very consistent. He never 
fully engage in this idea of a freeze or of a reversal of settlements. He, in fact, asserted that uh, Israeli Jews would continue to be able to settle in the West Bank and Gaza after the Camp David Accords. Uh, and he also had very specific goals in mind when he talked about UN Resolution 242 uh, and the idea of territory or land for peace. Uh, and in his mind, this didn't mean all the territory beyond the 1967 borders. It meant a limited amount. Um, so those were things that were inherent in the accord itself. Um, the other component that led to state prevention was the idea or the rise of an idea of autonomy for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And this was a, a notion that Begin began to suggest in the context of the Camp David talks that he could address the concerns of what he did, what he called the Arab residents of Judea and Samaria. He never called them Palestinians. He didn't see them as a national group. That he could address their concerns through a whole host of series of self-rule, uh, um, the, the, the ways in which they could conduct their own affairs internally through some form of self-governance. Um, and how does he treat... He, he's talking about the people in the West Bank and Gaza. Does he do anything with regards to the territory that they live on in terms of how it will be governed? Well, for him, there is to be no foreign sovereignty on the West Bank or Gaza Strip, as in foreign being non-Israeli. So he is very clear from the get-go that there will be no foreign sovereignty. That position is consistent, and if you pay attention to how Begin talks about the territories in the aftermath of 1967 and then how he talks about them when he comes into office, there is not a shift. That clash over the definition of sovereignty, over the way in which he understands the territory, is at the heart of the arguments and frustrations between the Carter administration and the Israelis. The other key part of the story is that the Egyptians enable this behavior. And part of the reason is that Sadat himself is so intent on retaining or getting the, the Sinai Peninsula back and shifting uh, Egypt from the Soviet to the U.S. camp that although he talks openly of his support for the Palestinians, although he speaks uh, about the need for a Palestinian state and self-determination, in practice, he allows for a narrow functionalist form of autonomy to be the basis of the conversation in the Camp David uh, autonomy talks that come out af after Camp David uh, between 1979 and 1982. And much of Sadat's foreign ministry staff, much of his uh, lead advisors, in the, in the Camp David process actually resign in protest because of his behavior. And as we know, he's maligned in the Arab world for his treatment and, 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 and notion of uh, how he deals with the Palestinians. He's ultimately assassinated a couple years later. Yeah, and there, there's uh, lots of debates and interesting uh, questions that historians of Egypt and Arab nationalism and the rise of the, the sort of the brotherhood in Egypt have about Sadat and his role in Egyptian domestic politics. Um, but yes, he, he is seen as um, turning his back in many ways on the Palestinians. He also had his own tensions with Arafat and the PLO. He, he did not see them uh, often as trustworthy or as uh, reliable. Um, I should also add, though, that this isn't only the story of Egypt and Israel. There's also domestic factors to account for that lead to a much narrower outcome and stymie the possibility of statehood. One of those is the Cold War hawks in the United States who are anxious about uh, Carter's alignment with the Soviet Union in his communique on Middle East issues and who fear that he is uh, reverting through his human rights discourse to um, a dangerous position for the United States vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Soviet influence in the region. They are the backbone of 
the neoconservative movement that emerges in the early 1980s in the Reagan administration. And they respond and react vociferously to Carter's initiatives. The second domestic constituency to think about is the American Jewish community and the American Jewish communal leadership. And there we have another uh, important actor in the story because the American Jewish community had never supported the Likud. They had always been engaged with labor governments, and there is a decisive moment in 1977 where the decision to circle the wagons and support the Begin government is made in the leadership of uh, the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, and that, I would argue, has long-lasting consequences that we still live with uh, today. Now, the process that you, you're talking about continues on past um, just the Camp David Accords and um, plays out in different ways in the United States and in Israel. Um, when we're talking about the Carter period, you have a Democratic president facing off on a conservative Likud prime minister in Israel, um, but in 1980, Ronald Reagan is elected. Um, how does his subsequent Republican administration change the balance uh, with with the um, with regards to the Palestinians and Israel. Well, the the Reagan election is crucial because Reagan and his advisors have a very different way of thinking about Israel and of thinking about the Palestinians. This is the first administration that makes a formal memorandum of strategic understanding with the Israeli government. It's also uh, an administration that's extremely hostile to the PLO. It sees the Palestinian national movement as a proxy of the Soviet Union and other third world activists. Um, And in that context, it is extremely hostile to the movement and to any engagement on these questions. And so you see a move that paves the way for some very crucial developments. First, we have a shift in the legal definition on the settlements. Under Carter, the settlements were considered illegal, and they were also considered an obstacle to peace. Reagan and his advisors, uh, influenced by some of the same neoconservative voices that are uh, outraged over Carter, begin uh, a process within the State Department and in the U.S. government of no longer labeling these settlements as illegal, but merely as obstacles to peace. And you can trace a direct line between that legal shift and the massive expansion of the 1980s. So the U.S. Uh, uh, shifts tactics on, on that particular issue. Um, they also, in the lead-up to the 1982 war in Lebanon, provide crucial support to the Israeli government's desire to target the PLO militarily through an invasion and intervention in Beirut. Now, uh, under the, the, the Carter administration, the Israelis had entered Lebanon in the aftermath of uh, a, a very um, significant terror attack in 1978, and they entered uh, in the Litani operation. Carter pushed them out and essentially forced the Israelis' hand and said this is not an acceptable way of uh, engaging with the Palestinian issue in Lebanon. Uh, in contrast, as I write about in the book, Alexander Haig, who's Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, meets with Sharon in Washington in May of 1982 and gives him explicitly a green light for an invasion of Lebanon. And this is based on new sources that I, I discovered at uh, the Hoover Institute in Stanford in the notebooks of Charles Hill, who was an executive uh, assistant to Alexander Haig. So you have the U.S. Uh, pushing and, and, and cheerleading the U.S., the Israeli uh, intervention in Lebanon. And that has huge consequences um, as well. Um, and also the third thing is that there is a, a, a real hostility towards the PLO as a political party. 
and a resistance to any form of engagement in contrast to the Carter administration, which had been involved in extensive secret talks with the PLO. Reagan shuns uh, the PLO. Despite all of this, the, the PLO um, is ultimately recognized by the Reagan administration and the administration following Ronald Reagan, the presidency of George Bush, the first President Bush, who had been Reagan's vice president, ends up being one of the most proactive in terms of advancing the Palestinian issue, uh, despite these being two Republican administrations. And again, Bush starting off as uh, Reagan's vice president. Um, how does that shift take place? Where does the turning point come for the United States there? Well, Reagan is uh, horrified by the violence in Lebanon. And on a personal level, he reacts viscerally to some of the violence on the siege of Beirut. And I think that's a part of his shift in attitude towards reckoning with the Palestinians in political terms. He actually announces a Reagan plan on September 1st of 1982 uh, from the Western White House in Santa Barbara that revives many of the same core principles of what Carter had been seeking to do in the Camp David process. He talks about a settlement freeze, he talks about sovereignty, he talks about uh, some form of uh, adjudication of the Palestinian issue. So I think the Lebanon War is part of that. Um, I also think that he realizes by the mid to late 80s that all the alternative efforts that are taken by the U.S., um, ideas like a quality of life initiatives to address Palestinian concerns, um, notions like a condominium with Jordan, all of these efforts do not work. Uh, and the outbreak of the First Intifada in 1987 makes it very clear that the Palestinians are not going anywhere, their political demands are still at the heart of regional politics, and he is uh, forced as a result to really contend with them in political terms. And the PLO at that point, by 1988, ultimately does accept some of the conditions that Kissinger had laid out um, for his ban on U.S. engagement with the PLO. That was, for example, um, accepting U.N. Security Resolution 242. Um, they don't explicitly recognize Israel until the Oslo Accords, but that it's implicit in accepting 242 and in their declaration of independence and, and the acceptance of a state in the West Bank and Gaza, it can be taken as implicit that they're accepting a state alongside Israel as opposed to instead of Israel. If there had been some kind of shift in the PLO policy um, earlier, of course this is a counterfactual, mm -hmm. but if there had been some kind of shift earlier, might it have placed the conservative or hawkish American and Israeli politicians in more of a box um, because the conditions that they had put out would have been met. Yeah, I write in the book about some of the ways in which the PLO in the 1970s, when they engage or discuss uh, an American offer uh, to recognize them in exchange for 242, uh, how these internal debates um, lead to a, a rejection of that proposal, and how, in some ways, the Palestinians themselves um, frustrate or delay uh, the reckoning with some of these demands. So certainly the Palestinian part of the story is, uh, is as well central to, uh, to, this, uh, to this delay in, in events. And it's, again, hard to go back and ask the what if, but I think it's a good question. Could things have turned out differently? You could ask the same question after 88, because when the PLO is officially recognized and when the Madrid process by 1991 begins, there is a moment and a window that I describe in the book where the, the issues that are at the heart of, uh, of, of the Camp David process initially and then later will become uh, the issues in Oslo, uh, questions of sovereignty and self-determination, of 
borders, territory, settlements, all of those are on the table in negotiations in which the Palestinians themselves are participating in Washington uh, in 1992. Uh, and um, I write about how those negotiations are undercut by the Oslo process. And this is something we don't really think about um, because we're so enamored with this idea of mutual recognition. But when you look at the Palestinian critical reactions to Arafat's decisions around the Oslo Accords, part of what explains this uh, anger about the PLO move is that there had been real progress made in the Washington talks. So so just taking a step back, most people are familiar with the Oslo Accords, with the, the Rabin Arafat handshake, with the kind of the imagery out of the 1990s, um, but probably less familiar with the Washington talks and even the Madrid process. Mm-hmm. The Oslo Accords are between Israel and the PLO, um, but the Washington process is something different. It's a different, they're talking to a different Palestinian delegation. Uh, Who's representing the Palestinians there? Well, first, just a word about Madrid. I mean, the entire Madrid process is, in many ways, uh, a revolution in Middle East peacemaking, because it's the first time all the parties are sitting around one table. And even though the optics um, are perhaps more important than the substance, the fact that you have Syrians, Israelis, Palestinian representatives convened in a meeting by uh, the United States as well as the Soviet Union right at the end of the Cold War uh, is an enormously significant moment in Middle East peacemaking. The Washington talks uh, allow for a a group of uh, approved Palestinian representatives who are not officially members of the PLO to uh, engage with uh, Israeli and American diplomats, although those who did participate were all approved or known by the PLO leadership in Tunis. Um, and they participate in regular talks. They include many academics, scholars, um, individuals of great uh, renown and prominence, people uh, like Faisal Husseini, uh, Hanan Ashrawi, uh, and uh, Hassan Khatib, uh, Rashid Khalidi, um, and others who were very knowledgeable about the specifics of the Palestinian um, uh, reality on the ground and who were also aware of these broader uh, contexts of Camp David and its limits. In fact, the negotiating team in the Washington talks had with them the papers of the Egyptian delegation to the autonomy talks after Camp David. So they were warned and aware of what might happen um, in the, the case of limited sovereignty and, uh, and autonomy returning to the fold. And so they really pushed back against those ideas. That is why there was such frustration and surprise when the Oslo Accords were announced. So the big distinction being that the PLO is operating in exile from Tunisia, and these are people who are in the occupied territories themselves and much more intimately familiar. Um, the Oslo Accords had, had been negotiated in secret, um, but something that I've heard raised sort of in counter to, to the argument about the Oslo Accords and the PLO entering, sort of circumventing the Washington talks, was that you know there was a fear that if Israel engaged a Palestinian delegation or party outside of the PLO, that the PLO might try to torpedo whatever engagement went on there because they saw themselves and had been recognized by the UN and at that point the United States and, and other, a lot of other countries and entities as the, the official singular voice of the Palestinian people. Well, the, the, the participants in the Washington talks were in constant and direct communication with the PLO right. leadership in Tunis. So there was... A, 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 a circular way in which this uh, this 
political engagement was being coordinated and shared. Um, so I would say on that score, um, there, 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 there was knowledge in Tunis about what was happening. On the other hand, Arafat and the coterie of his advisors in exile were extremely apprehensive about the idea that they would be supplanted by others, and they needed to get back to the West Bank and Gaza. And so the premise and the reasons why Oslo um, uh, succeed in, 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 in the ways in which Arafat pursues it is a desire to return to, to the territories and to return to the heartland of where the problems uh, themselves are located. You have to remember the First Intifada has still been raging for all of these years. There's a great deal of recognition uh, of enormous amount of grassroots activism, very effective activism, and Arafat and the PLO leadership often feel outside of the picture. And so Oslo is a means of returning. So the Oslo Accords ultimately do come about. You have the handshake, you have the mutual recognition, you have the subsequent treaties that, that break down the territories into areas A, B, and C, and, and establish a uh, Palestinian sub-state entity in some of the territories. Um, where does this fit in, in your mind, and in, in, in the, the context of um, your argument with the train of previous diplomacy from Camp David forward? Where, where does Oslo fit there? Well, first of all, let's be very careful about what mutual recognition means. If you look closely at the text of the actual letters of exchange and the Oslo Accords themselves, what's clear is that the PLO is recognizing a state of Israel, and Israel is recognizing the Palestine Liberation Organization. Right. That inconsistency or that gap in mutual recognition is crucial because you have essentially the Palestinian leadership taking the main card off the table of recognition in exchange not for recognition of Palestinian sovereignty, of Palestinian statehood, of Palestinian self-determination, but of the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people and recognition of uh, the viability or importance of Palestinian uh, nationalism. But that distinction is crucial because it's in that distinction that you can have the persistence of questions like limited sovereignty, limited autonomy, etc. So right, that, and, and that, that remains a distinction to this day. <laughs> I think there's even, with the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, there's probably a misconception about who Israel negotiates with when there are when there are subsequent rounds of negotiations, but it's to this day between Israel and the PLO. It's between it's not between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. So it's not even between a state and like a, a sub-state kind of quasi-state entity. It's between a state and this like kind of 1960s style third world liberation yes. group. Yes, um, and 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 also too in the creation of uh, the Palestinian Authority itself. Um, delegates out much of those powers to an authority that is supposed to run or help govern these territories. But again, the core question animating the book and animating the argument is where is sovereignty? Where is the possibility of control over territory, over borders, entry and exit, etc.? Where is that located? And some of the same problems that have uh, disrupted the possibility of a success uh, at the, the, the initial a discussion of these questions in the 1970s persists in the aftermath of Oslo. So that's that's where I see a continuity. So when you say you see a continuity, what are the, the connections uh, that you would place between Oslo under Yitzhak Rabin, Labor Prime Minister, and going back to Camp David and the Israel-Egypt Treaty um, under Menachem Begin, Likud? Well, primarily we see no promotion of any Palestinian state. And just like Begin is clear about that, so too is Rabin. 
Now, some have argued that Rabin's advisors believed or thought that mutual recognition would lead to statehood. That's an open question. It may very well have led to statehood. We don't know what would have happened if Rabin had not been assassinated. But if we look at Rabin's final speech in the Knesset, if we look at the text of what he was talking about in the aftermath and the debates over Oslo, we see that he was clear he didn't mean this to necessarily mean or lead to a Palestinian state. So we have to also be careful in how we reify um, and put Rabin up on a pedestal um, in retrospect. I think that there's been some really important work, uh, scholars including Itamar Rabinovich, who's uh, the biographer of Rabin most recently, has pointed to these inconsistencies in Rabin's position on sovereign statehood. Um, and it's no surprise, therefore, that somebody like Naftali Bennett, a leader of the right of Habayat Hayyudi, is posting or Facebook promoting Rabin's speeches as a kind of reminder to his left-wing critics that uh, look look at the people who agreed with some of the ways in which I myself talk about the past. I would push back on that notion a little. Um, I mean, certainly you're right, and Bennett is right, and Rabinovich is right. Rabin never talked openly about a Palestinian state, and the explicit program of the Oslo Accords was not about a Palestinian state. It was an interim agreement. Um, but I think there, there was a certain inevitability in bringing the Palestine Liberation Organization into historic Palestine, um, that that was what they were going to ultimately demand, and what, it was what they had been demanding. And you even lay out the case in the book that one of the main objections of the right-wing Israeli governments before Rabin not only was, was territorial sovereignty and territorial autonomy, but was specifically against the PLO. And the Oslo Accords went against that in bringing the PLO into the territories. And then there's also, I think, the question of, you know, I, I think it's very cynical to see someone like Bennett promote it. And, and you see it in the U.S. also, like the, the ZOA likes to really talk about the last Rabin speech mm. because um, Bennett, not as much because he was uh, younger in that period, but a lot of the people who, who would hold that up were vociferously opposed mm. to the Oslo Accords. Some would say violently opposed to the Oslo yes. Accords, and 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 I think I think that if they had nothing to fear, if it was just an expansion on their program or an advancement of the right wing program, um, then perhaps they wouldn't be so passionately opposed to it. Um, that's not that's not to say that mm. the Oslo Accords were perfect by any means, and I, and I don't think anyone would argue that now, twenty five years on, um, but just where what the intentions were, and of course it's all a what if, but that's also the system that we're living with today. Yeah, and, you know, I think the coverage of the 25th anniversary of Oslo is a good milestone to consider some of these questions. It's a very rich debate. Lots of uh, important pieces have been written. You can look at some of the negotiators themselves, writings by Diana Butu, Rashid Khalidi, um, Daniel Levy. Uh, others have talked and reflected on what this 25th anniversary means and how we do or do not correctly understand. Also, what I'm arguing for in the book is greater historical consciousness that allows us to think a bit more critically about the roots of Oslo, where it comes from, how it's connected to these things that come before it, how it doesn't just come out of uh, thin air, and that we can't only consider or talk about the question of the failure of Palestinian statehood or the failure of the peace process from the 1990s alone. I mean, the core way in which I see what I'm doing in the book uh, is about rethinking the periodization. Okay, we can't just look at this as a story of the 90s. It's a story that begins in the late 70s and before. And why that's particularly important, I think, in the context of a, a, 
a, a podcast here at the Israel Policy Forum is, is also to consider the ways in which the American Jewish communal leadership engaging on questions of the two-state solution uh, tend not to consider some of these earlier elements. What does it mean that in the Conference of Presidents of major Jewish organizations in 1977, a lot of the leaders of quite liberal and progressive uh, at the time organizations that were engaged on these issues made a choice to move away from labor politics towards towards the Likud. That choice was made in the late 70s. So it's not particularly surprising then to see in the 90s and beyond where some of the opposition to Oslo comes from. Right. I mean, it also, I think it's something that's, that's spelled out um, and the story of this, but it, it, it seems to cut both ways because the, the influence that um, Jewish Americans uh, wield in this story is both in some in some places in opposition to Palestinian statehood. In some places, there's like the American Jewish delegation dealing with the PLO yes. when the Israelis won't in the 80s. But it's definitely an important story to consider. We're talking about events that happened 25 years ago, 40 years ago, but Recently, we've seen a really dramatic shift in American foreign policy. Um, even the most right-wing American policy that you lay out in your book still has a level of consistency and continuity with the previous Democratic administration going from Carter to Reagan and then Reagan to Bush one and then to Clinton. But the Trump administration, what they've been doing recently, has been a really big break um, in terms of not explicitly talking about a two-state solution um, with the presence of uh, central advisors to the president who, um, in their own capacity as private citizens, have been very supportive of Israeli settlements. And now the cutoff of the USAID project in the Palestinian territories and the cutoff of aid to UNRWA, the Palestinian-specific UN aid agency, um, across the board, the, the U.S. had been the largest donor state and now has yanked all of its funding. Do the policies that are being espoused by this administration, do they have any roots in the period that you've studied? Well, I think that there was certainly a way in which you can trace the echoes of some of the things I described in the 70s and 80s, notions of economic peace, notions of limited autonomy, to the kinds of conversations you hear uh, Ambassador David Friedman and Jared Kushner and others having about an economic peace today and about uh, this question of aid and dependency. So there are continuities in the sense that these things were always part of the equation. I do think that some of the notions that Begin himself had been discussing about limited autonomy and uh, what it would consist of have found a much more receptive opening in this American administration. And that is the key difference. Even under the Reagan administration, if you look closely at the Reagan plan, you will see elements there that are extremely close to what Carter was arguing for in a comprehensive piece. Um, it is a world of difference from what you see within the Trump administration. So in that context, there has been a break. Um, some have said to me that they think some aspects of this break are healthy because it will expose very clearly the inconsistencies and the dynamics that have uh, sort of produced a, a, a dead end in the negotiations. But we also have to consider what the risks are and consider how much suffering 
this decision on right uh, funding if, even if it helps in the grand scheme of things or, or lays bare some political issues people are, are going to and, and already are going yes. to suffer the immediate consequences of a lot of money being taken away and yes and uh, and I, this notion that you know if you break a few eggs uh, and the way in which members of this administration have talked about their approach of, of, of breaking with convention um, it, it strikes me as extremely dangerous and extremely destructive um, but in some ways, in the broader context of how the Trump administration has been dealing with foreign and domestic policy, not at all surprising. And if we paid attention to the kinds of things that were being talked about in the campaign, uh, none of what's happening now should really surprise us. Right. It, may, it may shock us, it may be uh, distressing, but it's not surprising. It'll be interesting if someone's writing a history of this in 25, 40 years, what, what, what level of continuity, if there is continuity mm-hmm. at all, comes out of this because... Um, in in upending everything, um, it could be that the next administration, if it's a democratic administration, um, wants to reset things to where they were before, or it could open floodgates to you know a democratic administration could set a policy that's completely to the left of what Democrats have been doing previously, or a new Republican administration, mm-hmm. or a second Trump term, um, as scary as it is to consider, could just keep moving things even further to the right and and just um, continue to change around the goalposts. So um, things are definitely up in the air. Tilting away from the grand scale diplomatic history uh, for a moment and to your more personal story, you open the book with a reflection that takes you back to the early 2000s. Um, and you had just finished high school and were studying in the yeshiva in Gush Etzion in the West Bank. What had your experience with Israel growing up in the American Jewish community been up until that point when you arrived in the West Bank? Well, I think like many people who grew up in uh, a, a very uh, rich, uh, sort of culturally rich and uh, religiously um, observant American Jewish context, Zionism and attachment to Israel was very much at the core of uh, our identity in, in, in a diaspora context or in the notion that had been promoted of a diaspora context here in places like New York or the Northeast. And with that came a very clear idea of what Israel was, what it represented, how it was important and significant in the context of uh, Jewish life. And what I write about in the book is a a shattering of some of these perceptions from the outside with an encounter of daily life in the West Bank. And in particular, because I was uh, in in yeshiva, in the Gosh Etzion settlement block, I, I saw things and I understood things in a very visceral way that I didn't quite understand from the outside. Uh, and I also, as I write in the book, was there during the height of the Second Intifada, the violence and the trauma that I think everybody experienced who was on the ground, be they Arab or Jewish or non-affiliated, um, was uh, quite deep. And it led me to uh, reassess and start questioning and looking to understand uh, the history uh, behind uh, some of these contemporary uh, political developments. Uh, so that experience was was very uh, real to me. What would you recommend to people, younger people, learning about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and learning about Israel, um, growing up in the American Jewish community, and how to to play a like constructive role? And first, I would say read. And when I say read, don't just read narratives that confirm what you are being taught or told in Jewish communal spaces. And there has been a great anxiety in the American Jewish community about the confrontation with the question of 
Palestinian statehood, Palestinian aspirations, how destabilizing that might be for certain traditional American uh, pro-Israel narratives. And to the contrary, if you cannot think critically about where this conflict comes from, about uh, American agency in exacerbating the conflict, about Israeli agency, about wider Arab-Egyptian-Palestinian agency, what good will it be uh, to just project a certain kind of fantasy onto the reality that's actually unfolding. So my, my suggestion of reading is not just reading narratives that affirm what you believe, but reading narratives and historical accounts uh, that are critical or that challenge you. And to listen to the voices of Palestinians themselves. We have this tendency uh, to refract and only hear those voices as told through uh, an American Jewish context or through other comfortable contexts. And one of the important developments I've seen over the years is the emergence of organizations like Encounter uh, and others who have tried to bring American Jews into the West Bank to directly engage with Palestinians. You may not agree with what they have to say, you may not like uh, their political views, um, but if you can't take them seriously uh, and you can't understand why they feel the way they feel, uh, there is no way you will think your way out of this problem. Um, And so I would say uh, on that score, it's about reading and educating yourself. It's also about spending time on the ground and seeing things with your own eyes. I think a lot of people in the American Jewish community uh, who go and travel on organized trips, whether it be summer camp, whether it be birthright, uh, whether it be other forms of leisure travel or visits, tend to see a very sanitized view of what is happening in Israel and in Palestine. And the story of this conflict does not begin and end in West Jerusalem. You need to find yourself getting on buses, going through Colombia, seeing what's happening in the West Bank, going to Palestinian towns and villages, looking what's going on in the South Hebron Hills, talking to people in those places, and getting a sense of how and why uh, and to what extent their lives have been affected by the occupation. Although there has been many examples of people being questioned about uh, the desire to travel to the West Bank um, and about their political views when they go in. Uh, to Ben-Gurion Airport. And that's something to bear in mind. Um, What does it mean to suddenly be told that you're not welcome or you're not able to visit these places? And we've had lots of incidents uh, of that happening uh, in in recent uh, months and years. But for far longer, those kinds of incidents have been happening to Palestinians, Palestinian Americans, Palestinian Europeans who have been denied entry or not allowed uh, to go and to visit uh, either family or the places of their own origin. So I think that's another part uh, of the equation is, is trying to spend time there uh, and educate oneself about what's happening. Yeah. The last time I was in Israel, I did my the first, I did a Palestinian-led tour through the West Bank, um, and it was definitely enriching, and, and it was something that I, I would also recommend. Um, I think it completes the circle of, of, being, of being in Israel and, and just getting a broader understanding of, of where you are. Um, and I think that's important uh, wherever you're traveling. And I would say uh, on that, it's also going to parts of the Galilee, parts of Israel itself, where Palestinian citizens have their own cultural and political life that is developed in really interesting and important ways, and that those voices are also part of the way in which we engage or think about uh, the reality on the ground. Don't just go on a sanitized tour. So, on the 25th anniversary of Oslo, there's the story of the, the conflict within the American Jewish community over dealing with the Palestinians. Our board chair just published a piece in Haaretz about the really vicious reaction, not in Israel, but among Americans 
American Jews and other Americans to Oslo, and it's something that still really inspires a lot of um, a lot of really polarizing emotions in the American Jewish community. How has your um, how has your own home community received your work um, about trying to open up this story and, and, and tell this history? Well, it's a bit early to tell. The book's just come out a few days ago, so I don't know how people will react. But on a personal level, I found a mix of views. I think it's very um, dangerous to ascribe one particular view to the American Jewish community and even to particular denominations. I think there's a capacity for a critical view and a critical engagement on these questions across the board. And I think we need more of those kinds of conversations, more of that sort of engagement. And my own experience with educators or family or friends uh, has been one of deep attention and listening, obviously of critical pushback, but um, one has to have the conversation for that kind of change to happen. Um, And I think uh, everybody who thinks about these questions Uh, should also do some thinking about the deeper history behind them. Uh, They don't emerge out of of a product of only the 90s or the early 2000s, um, but we can understand a lot of the dynamics that we're seeing unfold, a lot of the political opposition uh, coming from far earlier uh, in the 20th century. Definitely, and as we look back on the anniversaries of Oslo and Camp David, both in this uh, month of September, it's going to be really important if we want to make progress going forward that we understand where things went astray in the past. So, you know, whether you agree with the conclusions in the book or not, it's definitely going to be an important process looking back at what the previous policies were, not only on the Israeli and Palestinian ends, but uh, from the United States as well. So, Seth, thank you for joining us on the show. It was my pleasure to be here. That was Dr. Seth Anziska. His new book, Preventing Palestine, A Political History from Camp David to Oslo, is out now from Princeton University Press, just released this month. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org and on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. Thanks for tuning in.